the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. To many people accustomed to traditional finance where you have banking accounts, monthly admin costs, and fees charged every time something moves from that account, and even when it doesn't, decentralized finance or DeFi might seem a little sci-fi. Anyone can be their own bank. You can store your cryptos and your stable coins for free in an electronic wallet and pay no monthly costs. Welcome to the fabulous new world of DeFi. You can borrow using your crypto as collateral without going through know your customer routines. No one wants to know your name or anything else about you. And you can earn interest by staking your cryptos. It's a wild and fascinating new world explained in detail by Stephen Sidley and Simon Dingle in a new book entitled Beyond Bitcoin, Decentralized Finance and the End of Banks. The authors are joining us to discuss this fascinating subject of Beyond Bitcoin. Stephen, that's a very provocative title, The End of Banks. Please explain why this is so. So there was there was a very famous um, a book written in the late 90s by Francis Fukuyama called uh, The End of History and the Rise of the New Man. And he never meant it to be taken sort of literally. It was a metaphysical uh, metaphysical statement. Obviously, history was going to uh, not going to end. And and we made a metaphorical statement as well. What we what we really mean to say there is that banks and I'm talking about a larger uh, economy than banks. I'm talking about the global financial institutions, which includes all sorts of other institutions like like the exchanges and, and insurance companies. They will have to change. They will have to shed their skin in in a painful shudder of, of reinvention. And so the word the end of banks, which of course is sexy in the title, but if we had put another title like the ends of banks as we know them, it wouldn't be quite as good, quite as suitable. So it's a metaphorical statement. A new world is coming. A juggernaut is coming at the financial companies who don't absorb this new technologies and the ones who don't won't survive. Okay, Simon, we've had you on the MoneyWeb Crypto podcast before talking about ZARP, that's Z-A-R-P, which is a RAND stable coin you were involved in developing. And this, of course, may be highly unusual for people to understand if they're thinking in terms of traditional finance. Explain what ZARP is and why we should care about it, and how does it tie into this DeFi space that we're talking about? Hi, Karen. Um, yeah, so you know, stable coins are really the backbone of DeFi, if you will, um, because having having that stability um, of a cryptocurrency that's pegged to the price of a real world currency gives you a safe haven, if you will, somewhere to flee from the volatility of cryptocurrencies, because of course things like Ethereum and Bitcoin are notoriously volatile in, in day-to-day pricing. Um, and it also gives you, if you will, a current a way for, to make your real-world currencies, your fiat currencies, compatible with what's happening on the blockchain. So that's why people care about it. There are some advantages to using stablecoins, of course. of course. Firstly, you get all the upsides of cryptocurrency. Distributed, you mentioned the fact that there's it's permissionless. You don't need to fill out forms and provide documentation. You can just download a wallet and, and get going. Um, For traders, you're also able to operate outside of banking hours while still having access to the value of a fiat currency. So right now, for example, if you're an arbitrageur and you're arbitraging between markets using the RAND, you're constricted to operating within banking hours. Now you can trade 24-7, 365, which of course is prevalent because most of your trading is probably being done by an algorithm. So you want it to be up as much as possible. Uh, And the list goes on. It's all the best things about cryptocurrency with the stability 
of the fiat currency. You mentioned that, and I was just recently talking to somebody who's involved in, in Forex, and he was telling me that he's actually using stable coins as a way of bringing money into South Africa at much lower cost than he could do it through the bank. So what they're doing is they're buying USD, US dollar stable coins overseas and shipping them to South Africa and selling them here. And they're shaving about 2% apparently off the, the cost, which is substantial if you're talking large volumes of money. I, I see a lot of volumes of funds moving over to the decentralized platforms like Uniswap, Curve, and Aave. Is this where cryptos are taking us, Stephen, away from Bitcoin and into the loving arms of DeFi opportunities? Okay, so so just to sort of explain or define or demystify this word called DeFi, which of course has expanded to decentralized finance. DeFi is the reimagining and re-engineering of all those financial services which we have used for the past thousand years, starting with the Medici banks in Italy. It is redefining and re-engineering the whole lend-borrow ecosystem, whether that be loans or deposits or mortgages or credit cards. They're all sort of debit and credit type instruments. That's it at the core banking. They are re-engineering what we now use as exchanges, whether they be stock exchanges or bond exchanges. Uh, uh, bond um, exchanges. They are re-engineering derivatives markets. They are re-engineering insurance products. When I say re-engineering, what I mean is because because the middleman is taken out of this equation and the middlemen in financial institutions have large marble buildings downtown and Mercedes in the garages and executive perks and most importantly, hundreds of thousands of employees and shareholder profits to worry about. If you have a simple algorithm doing the same job, the cost basis of DeFi is orders of magnitude lower than financial institutions. So when you talk to me about Uniswap, which is a decentralized exchange competing with stock exchanges, both within and without crypto, Curve, which is a big pool, liquidity pool, Aave, which is a land borrow initiative, there is a great sucking sound as money is being pulled out of the traditional market and put in those initiatives because the returns are better, because it's less expensive for the user, because it's fairer that you're treated the same way, that whether you're a poor person or a rich person, and because it is more trustworthy. The amount of money that came out of traditional finance and into those DeFi initiatives in the past year, at one stage it was as high as $150 billion. It has dropped a little bit in, in the past couple of weeks due to external circumstances, but it's going to accelerate. And these are the very projects that traditional financial institutions are absolutely terrified of because they simply offer a better deal to you and to me. Just following on on that point, people might find it quite stunning what you said there, that when you embracing these decentralized DeFi platforms like Curve and Aave, it's, you're actually, the level of trust you say is improved. Can you just expand on what you mean by that? Sure. So within a traditional financial corporation, you have the trust of the brand. I mean, one of our great four or five banks or any of them for that matter are not going to steal your money. They're not going to lose your money. They are going to comply with laws, but you have human beings in banks, and human beings can be threatened or bribed. They are bad actors. There are hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of employees. Many of them are bad actors, and many of the traditional finance crimes that exist throughout the world, and by the way, that number in the traditional finance world is $1 trillion a year is stolen through traditional financial institutions. In the world of crypto, 
it's 35 billion over the last 13 years. So about a billion a year if you had to, uh, sorry, about 3 billion a year if you had to average out compared to a trillion. The traditional finance world is a much lower hanging fruit for a criminal for two reasons. The one I've mentioned, you have human beings that can be swayed in very various numbers of ways. Um, but as importantly, it is um, fi- cash is much more non-traceable than crypto and transactions through traditional finance is much more traceable than crypto. Crypto is a public ledger. So when money moves within the the blockchain, everybody can see it. And what has happened over the last five to seven years is though people who have come in and hacked money out, many of them have been caught because they leave digital breadcrumbs. Go back to traditional finance if you want to steal money. It's much easier. People would say, and I've I've had people write to me at MoneyWeb, you know, I've had money stolen. Um, You know, who who can I speak to to get my Bitcoin back? And you have to break the the harsh news to them that actually nobody, because um, there is no intermediary. There's nobody sitting there in the middle that is going to arbitrate these matters. So if you send Bitcoin from one address to another or a stable coin from one address to another, it's gone. Um, And I think this is a problem that people have a little bit of difficulty getting to understand. Uh, Simon, would, would you agree with that? Is this something, this is the next bridge that we have to overcome in this area is how do we get mass buy-in when people don't have intermediaries there to hold their hand? I think that speaks to what Stephen was saying earlier about the evolution of financial institutions um, and how they're being forced to change because of these new technologies. Because I personally believe the reality is that the intermediaries are never going to go away entirely. I think there'll always be people who want someone to call, who want to know who their family can speak to when you know their will is being settled, for example, who want that certainty that comes from having an intermediary and who quite honestly just don't have the time and the patience or the interest to learn how to do all of these things themselves. You know, I think it's amazing, though, that those, those intermediaries are optional. So for those of us who have the intellectual curiosity, the telemetry, the interest, the technical know-how, you know, we can get on with life and we don't need the intermediaries anymore. We don't need the banks. Soon we won't need the insurance companies. We can lend, borrow, go crazy without them. But I think there's always going to be people who want to speak to somebody. Uh, and that's that's really where human trust re-enters the system because, as Stephen was alluding to earlier, on the blockchain, trust isn't really even a, a factor. It's not that you trust the network. It's not that you trust the miners. It's that you don't have to trust anybody. Trust isn't part of the equation because it's open source technology. You can go and interrogate the code yourself. You can go and see every single Bitcoin transaction that's happened back to the very first one when Satoshi Nakamoto famously sent Hal Finney some Bitcoin in 2009. You know, it's all transparent. So you don't need to trust anybody. You can you can verify. That's always been the mantra in blockchain, right? Don't trust, verify. And that's fine if you know how to do that. But we're going to need intermediaries for the people that are never going to have that confidence uh, and are are going to want somebody to help them out. Yeah, you can go on a pancake swap, which is one of these these DeFi platforms. You can stake coins at 70% or 80% a year. Quite stunning figures. Is it risky? Yeah. You know, your base currency in that case, let's say you're you're staking in cake, cake, that's C-A-K-E, that is the base currency. That's down from about half what it was maybe three or four months ago. Uh, maybe both of you, maybe start with you, Simon. Give our listeners some idea of some of the things that you can do with DeFi and where you see this going over the next couple of years. 
Yeah, and I think that's where the disclaimer comes in, that there is a, a lot of risk out there. As you said, a lot of these fantastic returns that are offered by DeFi protocols are denominated in tokens where value is nominal at best and where you are exposed to massive volatility. Uh, so in the early days of a protocol, when everybody's excited about it, those returns can be very real. You know, if you're farming on Solidly right now um, and you're earning solid tokens, this is Andre Cronier's new project, um, there's very real value there. Um, but what we see with a lot of these projects, and this isn't necessarily, um, you know, what's destined for Solidly, but these things can fall off of a cliff. And then all of a sudden that, you know, 60% that you thought you were earning a year has just evaporated in front of you. But uh, risk is a spectrum. And even in DeFi and even on the frontiers of DeFi, especially if you're using stable coins, the returns might not be that sexy, but they're still going to eclipse what you're going to get from a financial institution. So, you know, for example, if you're staking UST on Terra right now, you can get, uh, you know, returns of about 20%. And that's fairly reliable. It's in a stable coin. It's unlikely to lose its peg and its value. Uh, there's some risk involved, but I'd say it's uh, it's somewhere between a money market account and what you're doing with PancakeSwap. So, so that's one example of what you can do. You can provide stable coins into protocols um, like Anchor, where they're going to be lent out to other people, and you're going to earn interest just as you would in traditional money markets. You can also be a liquidity provider in other ways. So decentralized exchanges, of course, do not have their own liquidity pools, or they have very limited liquidity pools. They rely on a network of third parties, anybody who wants to really, to come and contribute liquidity to what they're doing. So you can come with, for example, ZARP and Ethereum, so that you can provide both sides of a liquidity pair. You can insert that liquidity onto a, a platform like Solidly or Uniswap or you know any of the big decentralized exchanges. And in exchange for providing liquidity, you'll earn the transaction fees um, from people trading against your liquidity pool. And then you'll also get what we call LP tokens, liquidity provider tokens. And if you stake those in, you know, um, sometimes with the exchanges themselves, sometimes elsewhere, as a, a, a sign of commitment to keep your liquidity locked in there, you'll get extra rewards, um, perhaps in the governance protocol of that exchange itself. And really, I could carry on all day, uh, Kieran. I think that's that's really the cool thing about DeFi is we're seeing all of these fantastic new uh, kind of derivatives, if you will, instruments being invented. I mean, ways of optimizing tax. So maybe just to add one more, um, you know, wrap tokens have become a way to uh, optimize tax in the United States. Because, of course, if you're earning a reward, that's classed as income. So, you know, for example, if, if you're on one of the Olympus-style um, uh, forks, and you're getting paid out a token as a reward for supporting the ecosystem, technically you should be declaring all of those token emissions uh, in your tax because you're receiving something as a reward. But if you wrap your, um, your governance tokens, uh, instead of getting an emission, so instead of a token, you know, getting actual tokens being spat at you, you now have a singular asset that's just appreciating in price. And so the tax will only come later as a capital gains event. So all of these fantastic experiments being applied um, and reimagining of things like insurance contracts and loans and et cetera. Uh, and with that, a plethora of ways that you can earn a return as a user with as little as 10 Rand, 50 Rand. Yeah, if I can just, if I can, if I can just add to that, Kieran, you know, the, the whole world of DeFi really only exploded 
but it didn't go. It probably started, the first Real Deep Fire initiative was in 2017. It was a project called Mercator. But uh, the summer of 2020, the American summer of 2020, or the Northern Hemisphere summer of 2020, these projects sort of exploded in, in sort of a, 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 Cam, a Cambrian bacchanal of, of innovation. And it is now sort of a squealing baby uh, with innovation sprouting all over the place. There is a maturation phase in DeFi which has not started yet. So when you talked earlier about returns of 70 and 80% per year, and there are projects who, who, will, who will offer 700 and 800% a year, it doesn't take a mathematician to understand that you can't sustain that. You'll suck all the, the money out of the universe very quickly at those sort of rates. So there will be, as, as the risk starts to reduce, so the rewards will start to reduce. But with certainty, because the cost basis of DeFi is so much lower, then the cost basis of any one of the global institutions, they will never, ever be able to match for the turns because they're spending so much to keep their infrastructure going, their people and their high street uh, infrastructure. I uh, came across somebody recently who quit his job as a computer programmer. He was earning 80,000 rand a month, and he's staking it in one of these very high-earning pools that you've been talking about, earning several thousand percents, um, apparently, I find that frightfully uh, risky, um, and uh, but apparently has managed to replace his income. But that point that you made there, it's not sustainable. These these things start off very very high. It's the same thing with pancake swap. You know, if you if you're staking on there, you see those rates reducing almost daily as more and more money comes into those pools. So what has happened is many of those early projects and current projects which showed those those unsustainable rewards. Uh, the financial institutions, when they saw this, when we started writing at the beginning of 2021, said, with some justification, this is nonsense, this is a bubble, this is unsustainable, this is going to crash, this is rat poison, this is kryptonite. But what has happened over the past year is some of those um, projects have started to mature and the returns have started to drop. But as I said, they've dropped to a much higher level than global financial institutions can offer. And in fact, now they, uh, there is not a single global financial institution in the world who hasn't got a toe in the water of DeFi because they know that this is coming. They know they have to start offering these cheaper, more trustworthy and fairer services. And those financial institutions who don't absorb the stuff, we believe will not be around for very much longer. Okay. Uh, Simon and Stephen, you, you both have interesting backgrounds. Um, give us a brief CV. How do you got to where you are now authoring this book and where your interest in DeFi originated. Right. I have a, um, a master's in computer science from UCLA, and I worked in deep technology for many, many years, in fact, many decades, and then started writing um, in 2011. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a five-time novelist. I've, I've won the UGA Award, and I've been on multiple shortlists, and writing became a second sort of leg that I stood on besides um, technology investments and entrepreneurship. So it was, it was a short hop to write about this subject. Simon has done a whole bunch of things, but he's been in Bitcoin since 2011, which makes him an original gangster, and he's also written a book. So it, it was sort of a, a match made in heaven as far as we're concerned to take on this particular to topic that we, we knew was transformative and would be transformative. All right, Simon, pick up what your, your involvement. Going back to 2011, yeah, dinosaur age in crypto terms, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's strange to, to, to think of, you know, a mere decade ago um, as, as making you an OG in any industry. But, of course, crypto, you know, in its current guise has only been around for around, 
you know, 13 years with the, the beginnings of Bitcoin. Although there was a lot happening in the early 2000s, late 90s, uh, guys like Wei Dai and, and uh, you know, a lot of cryptographers and, and cypherpunks who were involved back then. Um, and I think that, that that's an interesting thing to, to point out is that, you know, while Bitcoin, you know, came came into being around 2009 and crypto is now part of our daily life in the developed world, um, this was something that, that was predicted for a long time by computer scientists and, and information scientists and cryptographers because it was just such an obvious protocol that was missing from the Internet. You know, the Internet connected the world for us and that revolutionized our communications, our social networks, the way we get news, the way we share family photographs, et cetera, et cetera. But money was really missing. And so we had protocols for you know, transporting voice over IP so that we could call each other on Skype and video so that things like Zoom could run. But really, there was no protocol for money, which I think a lot of people found curious in the early days of the internet. And instead of that, we had a traditional financial system that we had shoehorned into working online using things like credit cards that were invented in the 1950s. But none of these things had a, a solid protocol that was a part of the internet itself. And that's what Bitcoin really brought us. It brought us a protocol that runs like HTTP and, and other protocols on the internet with alongside the internet itself on top of TCP IP. And so really, I think that's, that's really what intrigued me when I saw this thing coming was A, this is seriously cool. And B, wow, this is what guys like Milton Friedman told us would inevitably arrive with the internet at some point. I think that's also what makes it so uh, crazy to me to hear people like Warren Buffett talk about this thing as if it's a terrible idea that's, that's going to go away just showing the obvious, complete misunderstanding of how the internet itself works. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people have got egg on their face for predicting the end of this, uh, this particular trend. Uh, final question, I'd like a word from both of you on this. Uh, do you think financial institutions are going to jump on board the DeFi train over the coming years? You know, there's certain markets there that are just begging for disruption. Just think of remittances to Africa, that, which in some countries is worth, you know, 4 or 5% of their GDP. But the costs, this is a World Bank study, the costs are about 9% to move small amounts of money, like $200. Now you've got a group like Paxful, which is using blockchain and is using cryptos that are doing that for 1%, and that cost is going to go down from that to almost close to zero. So clearly they're going to have to do something. Stephen, what do you say? Yeah, so, so there are a couple of answers to that. The first one is this is here now. The most obvious example is El Salvador, which is the first country to have legalized Bitcoin as, as tender, and they get about 50% of their GDP from remittances, and those people who are having money remitted to them by relatives or friends in, in developed nations, we're having as much as 30 or 40% taken out on the way to getting the money back. Companies like Western Union were pulling the ring out of it. They now pay fractions of a cent for each remittance. So that one is live and working and a use case that everybody understands. And one should remember that the, the population of El Salvador is not a highly educated university degreed population. These were people who work in farms, all of whom have downloaded wallets and they're getting their remittances near, at nearly zero cost. One other example is one of the big lend borrow initiatives called Aave, A-A-V-E, saw this opportunity last year and released a version of its lend borrow DeFi initiative, which is meant for banks to offer under their own name. It has sacrificed some of the decentralization because banks obviously want to be centralized, but it's already started. There's no major financial institution in the world who's not playing around with this. And I think we'll see the first big commercial uh, initiatives start rolling out this year. Simon, your view on that? 
Yeah, I think it's interesting watching the evolution unfold because in some ways it's going way faster than, than any of us imagined 10 years ago and in other ways slower. And I think that's really the story of, of innovation. You know, human beings are primed to resist change and this changes almost almost everything. Um, but it is very satisfying to me when, when I get out of, you know, off of Twitter and away from how my friends in Europe and America are talking about whether or not Bitcoin wastes electricity, which of course is nonsense. It uses less than Christmas lights every year. But, um, you know, get, get, get my head out of all of that hypothetical nonsense and just talk to my friends in South Africa, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, who are using this stuff in the way it was intended as peer-to-peer -peer digital cash. That's simple. Sending money from South Africa back home to Zimbabwe, zero fees. And speaking to a, a friend of mine who's a, a farmer in Zimbabwe who can't rely on the local currency, uh, can't get reliable banking in country, uh, can use US dollars if he's willing to keep large amounts of cash hidden in his home. And Bitcoin has literally been a lifesaver. And, you know, he kind of just laughs when he sees people talking about how this might go away. He's like, well, you're telling me my livelihood's going away. Yeah, you know, the only reason I can be in this country is because Bitcoin exists at this stage. And so. To me, just seeing real people pick this up and, and like any true innovation, it meets necessity. It really does, uh, you know, meet a need. And so whether it's El Salvador or Zimbabwe or now Russia, Ukraine, um, you know, and elsewhere in the world, uh, real people are flocking to cryptocurrency because it's, it's, it's so obviously useful in a way that their traditional banking system isn't. Well, I think you certainly got the attention of the banks with a title like that, Beyond Bitcoin, Decentralized Finance and the End of Banks. And of course, Bitcoin was formulated or was conceived with this kind of revolutionary spirit where the uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, he did envisage a new technology that would be an answer to the kind of recklessness that he saw happening in the world financial system at the time. And it was going to be a disruptor. We, we knew that. But I think we're really seeing use cases now developing at a fantastically fast rate. So I want to thank you both for coming on to MoneyWeb Crypto and sharing some of your insights uh, into the book. And uh, we'll no doubt there'll be a chapter two to this and we look forward to catching up with you then. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto podcast hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, Go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.